Hello, I want to welcome you to the Point Church Alberta Campus Sunday Preaching Podcast. My name is Josh Heisler and I'm the Alberta Campus Pastor. We strongly believe in the expositional preaching of God's Word, which works to build our faith and grow us up in Christ. Our prayer is that this message will be a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join us as we get to the point. Good morning, church. Good morning. Uh, it really is my pleasure to be here. And before we get started, I told Josh I'd keep this to an hour. But this, just kidding, Josh. So, all right. Um, yep, so turn to Luke 15. We'll camp out there today most of the time. Deuteronomy 30, near the end, we'll kind of jump to there and we'll see a parallel passage. So if you want to bookmark that as well, you can. But everything should be up on the screens for you. And I'm going to read a lot anyway. Um, uh, I'm not going to give you a big personal intro today. Josh did enough for the sake of time. Uh, I want to tell you one thing about me, though, in addition to what Josh said, and that was uh, kind of my passion. My passion is to, is to learn, is to acquire knowledge, to understand how everything connects, to like see big pictures, and, and, and to get a full understanding of what I'm reading, what I'm looking at, what I'm experiencing. And then when I, when I get that, when I understand something, when something is, is uh, when I grasp it, I love to teach it. I love to reveal it, which is probably why I'm an instructor in the Air Force. So I love to, to pass on when I get the light bulb moment, right? And so that kind of leads into why I chose this sermon today, uh, to kind of pass on what I have actually learned the past couple of years through studying God's Word. Uh, and I'll go ahead and say I grew up in a Christian home, and I've read the Bible my whole life, and I would I would probably say until about three years ago, I read it wrong, I read it incorrectly. And so what, what I did with good intentions was I'd come and I'd read the scripture and I'd look for me. I'd read for, for morality, for better, to make myself better, make myself more like God. What can I get out of scripture for me? Uh, and because of that, I'd pretty much ignored most of the Old Testament. I'd skip to the gospels, maybe primarily the epistles to try to figure out what can I do to be better? It's all about me. And what I've learned a couple of years ago with the help of some close pastor friends of mine and, uh, and uh, some seminary guys was that this isn't about me. The scriptures, are, none of this is about me. It's, it's his story. From beginning to end, it is about God, and it's his story. It's there to reveal his character. So no matter where you're at, if you're in the Old Testament, you should, the application is to be in awe of his character, to learn who God is, be in awe of that, and let that change you. If you're in the Gospels, it's to be in awe of his son, to see the character of the son, how it's the exact same as the father in the Old Testament. And then if you're in the epistles, almost every epistle is kind of laid out the same way. The first half of it is, hey, this is what God has done for you. Now, here is your response. So none of it is really about you. It's about him. And so as I read the past couple of years, I understood that, hey, the more I am in awe of God, the more I become like him. So me trying to be Instead of me working harder, I just look to him, and he changes me. He's the source. And so to kind of encapsulate that idea, I'm going to read a very lengthy quote, and I'm sorry, the rest of this is pretty short after this, but I just thought it was really good. This is from Dr. John Hanna. It kind of encapsulates this idea that I'm talking about. Uh, it's from his book, Intimacy with God. He says, if our goal is to live in such a manner that conforms to the character of God, to the object of our delight and affection, we must know him. If we are ignorant of the ways and values of the one we seek to please, we will find ourselves stumbling about in allegorical darkness to please him. At a very basic realm of interpersonal communication, how can we appropriately communicate and have a wholesome relationship with a person we do not know? 
where it be a parent, mate, child, or friend, it requires learning. It also is true of walking with the Lord. This means that we must get to know him. We must become acquainted with the Bible because in it, God has supremely revealed himself. And so with all that, my goal today is to reveal himself more. Uh, Really, the purpose of this sermon is to turn our eyes upward, to see him, to see his character. And to do that, we're going to listen to Jesus tell a story about his father in Luke 15. The story we like to call the story of the prodigal son or the story of the lost son. And I'll start with that title, first of all, the, the prodigal son is actually not even a good title for the parable. And the reason is, in the parable, there are two sons. There's the younger son who's prodigal, and there's the elder son, and they're equally relevant in the story. But even so, the story isn't about either of them. It is actually about the father. It's Jesus is trying to show the character of the father in this story, which is why I titled this sermon, The Character of the Father. And so, let's get the context of the parable before we read or dive into the parable itself. So to get that, we're going to read the first three verses of Luke 15 to get, again, that context before we dive in. All right. Uh, In verse 1, we see, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying. So we step back, we pause, we ask, Why is Jesus telling these parables? Well, the answer is right there in the first two verses. The Pharisees are grumbling at what Jesus is doing. And they're grumbling not because Jesus has friends in low places. He's not just hanging out with his buddies. No, he's receiving them. He's receiving the sinners and he's eating with them. It's a very intimate type interaction. You got to think, Jesus shows up on the scene at the beginning of the Gospels declaring, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, your king is here. Come to me. And then we see all throughout the Gospels, he's healing and he's forgiving sins. In Luke 5, the paralytic, paralytic is brought to Jesus, and Jesus first forgives his sins. And the Pharisees jump in and are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Only God can do that. And he's like trying to tell them, yes, that's who I am. And then he said, just so you know, I do have power. I'll go ahead and heal him too. And then he heals him. So the Pharisees know who Jesus is. They know what Jesus is claiming all throughout the Gospels. And they have the same philosophy throughout the, entire, uh, throughout the entire Bible. And what their philosophy is, God, does, God loves the deserving, the deserving and the worthy like them, where Jesus is trying to tell them, no, God is the opposite of that. He loves all, especially the unworthy. And so the philosophy of the Pharisees in Luke 15 is God loves the deserving, not the unworthy sinners. And since God is like that, and Jesus, you are opposite, you cannot be from the Father. You are not the Messiah. So Jesus responds with these three parables. So these three parables are a response to the Pharisees grumbling that he is receiving sinners. And so he, res- <clears throat> he responds with three parables. And we're not going to read them all. It's 30-something verses. We're going to summarize the three, and then we'll come back and unpack them. The first parable he responds to or responds with is the lost sheep parable. It's verses 4 through 7, but he begins it by saying, What man among you if he has a hundred sheep? And then he goes and tells, What if you, if you lost one of those hundred sheep? Would you not leave the 99? Go find the one that was lost. Bring it back. And if you found that lost sheep, would you not celebrate? Call your friends. Call your neighbors. 
and then throw a big party. And then he finishes that parable by saying, in the same way, there would be joy and celebration in heaven over one sinner who repents. And then, at the, uh, and then the next parable, he shifts to the lost coin. And he says, if a woman had 10 coins and she lost one, and she turned up her house looking everywhere for the one lost coin and she finds it, and then she calls her friends, calls her neighbors, they celebrate, have a big party. And then in the same way, he finishes that parable by saying, there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And then he moves on to the lost son parable, which we'll focus on today. And to summarize, he starts off by saying a man had two sons. And then the younger son comes to the father, requests his inheritance before the father is passed. So we know the father has wealth because he has inheritance. And then the son is, is not a great son because he's asking for the inheritance early. Uh, but then the father gives him the inheritance. The, father, the younger son leaves, goes off to a foreign land, and then squanders it. It says, with loose living. Then the older son actually accuses him of spending it on prostitutes. So we know it's not a good investment to what the son is doing with his inheritance. And then while he is, after he has spent all of his inheritance in this foreign land, a famine hits. The younger son is now starving. So he does whatever he can to get food. He goes, hires himself out, and he starts feeding swine to the foreigners. He feeds the foreigners swine. And the swine have food, but he doesn't. And then he realizes that he wants what the swine are eating. That's how hungry he is. And then he comes to his senses, and he says, he remembers how good it was in his father's house. And so when, when he comes to his senses, he, he rehearses like, okay, I'll, I'll go apologize, and I can't be a son anymore, but maybe my father will hire me as a servant, because even the servants in my father's house had plenty to eat. So then he comes back, and while he was a long way off, the father sees him, and the father runs to him and rejoices him, rejoices and wraps him in the best clothes, wraps his, arm around, his arms around him, brings him into the house and throws a big celebration. And meanwhile, the older son is out in the field working and will not come into the party uh, because he's kind of angry that the younger son is getting all this attention because when, unwor- when he was disobedient and squandered the inheritance while the older son claims that he has been obedient his whole life. And the father tells the older son that, hey, Everything I've had has always been yours. Come on in and celebrate. And that's kind of how he finishes the the parable. We don't know what the older son does. So that's the three parables summarized. Again, remember, it's a response to the grumbling. It's not about how to honor your father. Jesus is trying to tell them this is how the character of the father is. And so real quick, in the lost sheep and the lost coin, I want you to see one thing, that the shepherd and the woman are the Pharisees, and they're not Jesus. You often think you correlate the two. They're actually the Pharisees, and here's why. Because Jesus starts off the parable saying, what man among you? He's telling them, what man among you? Wouldn't you, if you lost your sheep, or if a woman lost her coin, would not go find it and then celebrate when you found it? He's trying to relate to their character. He's saying, you value things, and in the same way, the Father and heaven value people, value repentant sinners. So then he shifts to the lost son parable and says, now let me tell you a story about what the father values. So the first two are about the Pharisees. You value these things. Now let me show you what the father actually values. And so that leads us to the three points I want to make about the father in the lost son parable. Point number one is repentance. The father requires one thing only, one thing only from the son, and that's repentance. We see repentance, I'm going to show you, all throughout Luke 15. 
at the, uh, in verse 7, at the end of the first parable of the lost sheep, we see, uh, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. At the end of the lost coin parable in verse 10, he says, in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then in Luke, uh, and then in verse 17, in the middle of the lost son parable, kind of the pivot point says, but when he came to his senses, so the younger son comes to his senses. So we see that repentance, that turning around. And so notice that in the lost son parable, the inheritance is not paid back by the younger son. There's no restitution for reconciliation. The son repents, turns towards the father, and is brought back into the house doing nothing else, no other requirements. Grace is not earned. There is no work required. But we see the elder son out in the field working and complaining. And we know throughout all of Scripture, your works and self-righteousness cannot save you. It will not save you. Oh, and we see it's extremely clear in, in Romans, Romans 9, 30 through 32, Paul says, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. So again, the law does not save, works do not save, the Father saves you through his Son. It starts with repentance, and we see it in the story as the first thing that happens. So what happens next? Well, notice the camera angle shift in verse 20 of the lost son parable. In verse 20, we see, so he got up and came to his father, and then notice, but while he was still a long way off, so as soon as he turns, and if you look and do a word study there in the Greek, that actually is like a, it's a previously begun action. The father had already been looking. He had been scanning the horizon, waiting for his son to return. This wasn't like a cursory glance. He had been looking for him. And then next, continuing on in that same verse, we see his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And so that's the second thing I want you to see. Second thing I want you to see about the father today. So first of all, we see repentance. He only requires repentance. Second thing I want you to see about the father's character is he is compassionate. He loves giving mercy. That is the core of his character. Notice, notice how the father runs. So children run, scared people run. Rich Eastern landowners don't typically run, but the father runs to his son. It's almost like he can't help it. Then notice, notice the son, his, the first words the son says when he comes to his father. I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. This is verse 21. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then right there, the father interrupts him, stops him, and the mercy flows. Then the father celebrates. Verses 23 and 24. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He, he was lost and has been found, and they begin to celebrate. We see celebration. Then the father, we see the father rejoice at the end in verse 32. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and is was lost and has been found. The father delights 
in compassion. He delights in mercy. That is his ultimate joy. It's the, the core, again, of his character. And so we've seen the Father require repentance alone. He's compassionate in mercy, and he loves to give it. Then there's one more step kind of in the restoration process. We see in verse 32 and 24 that the Son kind of goes from death to life. But ask how. How does that happen? So I'm going to get you to think real quick. Their problem, both in the parable, the Pharisees' problem in Luke 15, the sinner's problem in Luke 15, our problem, Israel's problem all throughout the Scriptures, everybody has the exact same problem, and it's a heart problem. We all have bad hearts. And we don't need cleaning. We need to be made new. Jesus calls the Pharisees all the time whitewashed tombs. Clean on the outside, dead on the inside. But we're, we're all naturally opposed to God. And C.S. Lewis brilliant, brilliantly said, Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. And so you have to ask, how are we made new? How are we brought from death to life? And that's point number three that I want you to see what the Father God the Father does. I'll give you the point, and then we'll kind of unpack it. Point number three is the Father will give you a new heart. Now, we don't see it in the parable of the lost son, do we? We don't see that, that written there. But I'm going to argue that it is in Luke 15. And I'm going to show you here in a minute where it's at. But I want you to consider one thing before we do that. What is Jesus doing with this parable? With, with, in Luke 15, what is Jesus doing? Uh, well, with the parable of the prodigal son primarily. So consider this one thing, that Jesus is not making up a story. He's not making up some made story, made up story about the father. And here's why. Logically, he can't do it because the Pharisees could do the exact same thing to make their point. So Jesus isn't saying, here's my, here's my story about the father. Isn't he wonderful? And the Pharisees could come back and be like, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. We have a story about the father. And the same story you just told, the, the father shuns the younger son when he returns, makes him work out in the field for 50 years before he can come back into the house, and he blesses the older son. See, the God that we know blesses the obedient. They can make up a story to make their point. And so, for example, think about me and Pastor Josh were having a conversation about Nathan. And we, and Pastor Josh came to me and said, hey, Nathan is the most serious guy you've ever met. Never smiles, never goofs, never jokes around. He's super serious. And I came in and said, whoa, 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 whoa. Do you not remember Vacation Bible School last year? Silly Songs with Nate. That was my kid's like favorite part of Vacation Bible School. Silly Songs with Nate. He's, there's not a serious bone in his body. Nate's super, super funny. He loves to smile and joke around. And so I tell a story that we're both familiar with about Nathan's character, so he can't argue. And so I'm arguing... Today, that's what Jesus is doing here. He is telling them, he is referencing God's character that they should already be familiar with, and that's from the Old Testament. Again, we do this all the time. We write papers, we give speeches, we, we use references that everybody can attest to. And so Jesus tells a story from the Old Testament to make his point here, and that story can be found, the parallel can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 30, and I'll, we'll look at it here in just a second. I want to give you a little bit of background in case you're not in the Old Testament, it wasn't, didn't used to be. Uh, Deuteronomy, 
First of all, it's one of the most important books of the Bible. I know you're going to be like, roll your eyes and like, whatever. Um, and I'll say, besides Genesis, it probably is. And the reason why is because without Deuteronomy, you have no chance at understanding the big narrative of Scripture, what God is doing with Israel. Second, so Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. So Moses is coming to the second generation after the Exodus. The first generation is disobedient, will not go take the land. Joshua and Caleb are the only ones that are obedient. So the, the second generation, well, God brings out that first generation, says, okay, you just wander around and die, and then I'll bring up the second generation because you're disobedient. So he brings up the second generation. Moses like, okay, through Deuteronomy, here's the second giving of the law. Here's like a recap of how God is, how he operates, and what he wants you to do, Israel. So here you go, and that's what he's doing all throughout Deuteronomy. And then he hands off the mantle of leadership to Joshua, and they go take the land. Well, um, in this chapter, or in this book, in Deuteronomy 28 is going to be kind of the background for Deuteronomy 30. And 28 is the famous blessings and curses chapter. It's probably, probably one of the most important chapters in this book. Um, Deuteronomy 28, God literally says, you do these things, I will bless you. You do these things, I'm going to curse you. This is how I want you to operate. And so just to give you an idea of what's happening in Deuteronomy 28, we're going to read a couple of verses here. Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 and 2. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. And then he lists for about 13 verses, all these things that will happen, all these blessings that will come. And then he pivots. In verse 15, he's like, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe and do all his commandments and statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then he starts listing out a bunch of curses that are going to happen if you're disobedient, Israel. Some of those I want to highlight. Verse 37, he says, you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a taunt among all the peoples where the Lord will drive you. And then verse 41, he says, you shall have sons and daughters, but they will not be yours, for they will go into captivity. So he's driving them out. They're going into captivity for generations. And then verse 43, it says, the alien who is among you shall rise above you higher and higher, and you will go down lower and lower. You're going to, I'm going to send you out. You're going to go into captivity, and you're going to be the lowest of the low if you disobey me. And we know that's what happens. And then we come to Deuteronomy 30. So that's the backdrop before we get to Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30, this is what Moses says to the people. The Lord says through Moses to the people of Israel. He says, so it shall be. This is verses 1 through 6 in Deuteronomy 30. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples of the Lord, uh, where the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you're outcast or at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he'll bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. And then he kind of punchlines 
uh, verse 9 in that same chapter. I'm not going to read it all, but he, the punchline is, for the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, it says in verse 9. So are you starting to see the parallel between Deuteronomy 30 and Luke 15, the same character of the father? I'm pointing out for you. Disobedient child in verse 1 says, when all these things have come upon you, in, Deut- in Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, we see the disobedient son and uh, the prodigal son parable. We see the disobedient child go into the foreign land. Verse 1, he says, in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you. And then we see repentance in verse 1 and 2. We saw, he said, and you call them to mind and you return to the Lord your God. And then we see the father's compassion after they return. Verse 3, we just read, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and will have compassion on you. They're brought back, verse four. From there, the Lord your God will gather you. and From there, he will bring you back. And then they're restored. And how are they restored here? Verse six, moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants, which love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And then we see in verse nine at the end, the father rejoices. For the Lord your God will again rejoice over you for good. So we see the exact same thing happening. Deuteronomy 30, the promise to Israel, and what's happening to the lost son in Luke 15. And then so we must ask ourselves, besides here, where's, where's another place in Scripture that the promise for God to give you your new heart, to circumcise your heart? This will be our last Scripture reading for the day, and then I'll kind of close out. Jeremiah 31, the new covenant passage. 33 through 34, the verses 33 through 34, Jeremiah says this, but this is the covenant, well, God says this, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart, I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each, each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. God himself will circumcise the heart. He's going to give the new heart and the forgiveness of sins. And now go back to the question I brought up earlier. I know we don't see that new heart in the parable of the lost son, but I argue that it is in Luke 15. I'm going to ask you to consider this. What is Jesus doing in Luke 15? Think outside of the parable, what is Jesus doing sitting there with those people? I think Jesus is telling them, telling them today, today as I'm telling you these stories, today is that day. Today is that day that was promised of compassion and mercy. Today is that new heart day, that day you can get the new heart and be ushered in to the Father's house. You can be brought in to the kingdom. See, Jesus came on behalf of a compassionate and merciful Father to carry out these things, and he's doing it as he's telling these stories. And so I want you to think this, this is our God. That's his character. This is our Jesus. He asks for repentance. He then pours out compassion, and then he gives you a new heart. And so as we read his word, as we study his word, be in awe of the God you've met. Be in awe of him because the more in awe of him you are, the more like him you become. That's how it works. We don't try harder on our own. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We roll through his mercy over and over and over in our head and just kind of meditate on it. 
We devote our life to his word, his prayer, or to prayer, and to his body through the church. And then we fall in love with the character of God that we have met in the scripture. We go to the scripture to see him because he is the source. I mean, think about it. First John 4, we love because he first loved us. You don't love naturally. We're slaves to sin without him. Without that new heart, you're a slave to sin. You're just dancing to your DNA, as they say. So you have to have that new heart, and it only comes from the source. And with that comes the Holy Spirit, which loves the Father. And so, again, we're not worthy of this, right? But he's full of compassion, and he rejoices when he brings in the unworthy. That's, that's his character. So run to him and not from him when you know his character. Well, I'm teaching my kids that right now. They're little six and three. I'm trying to teach them when you do bad stuff, run to us. Like, tell, like, we love you. We want to help you through it. Don't run from us in fear because we're compassionate. The Father is compassionate. Run to him no matter what you're going through. And so I'm going to ask, how well do you know him? You run to him and everything. And so that day, that day when Jesus was having these conversations, <clears throat> that started the long line of unworthy sinners coming to the Messiah for the new heart. And uh, <clears throat> in my personal life, and I'm sure in a lot of your lives, I know in my personal life, he granted me mercy a long time ago. He grants me mercy today, and he's going to welcome me with great mercy into the kingdom. And so see him, turn to him, get that new heart if you don't have it, and then rest in his arms and be ushered in as a child of the king, as you are if you have that new heart. And so I'll close with this, uh, this hymn I came across that I just, I just loved. So I'm not going to sing it. So don't worry, I'm just going to read it. Uh, it says, I love to tell the story, which will be thy theme and glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. When in scenes of glory, I sing the new, new song, it will be the old, old story I love so long. And it finishes out. I love to tell the story. It will be thy theme and glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast from The Point Church. If you would like more information about our church, or if you have any questions, you can find us online at tothepoint.church.